when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing leadership plots and the ongoing Tory wars, plus John McDonnell's latest proposals to beef up workers' rights and trade unions. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent, Laura Hughes, and columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. It's been another week of furious infighting in the Conservative Party. Disquiet over Theresa May's checkers proposals for a softer Brexit have gradually been morphing into more criticism of the Prime Minister herself. Steve Baker, the former Brexit minister, hinted that Theresa May would be in real trouble if she tried to pass her checkers proposals through Parliament with opposition votes. Then reports emerged of a meeting of the European Research Group of Brexit MPs on Tuesday, where 50-odd MPs were openly talking about how and when to challenge the Prime Minister. But how much of all this is all talk, no trousers? George Parker, it's been one of those weeks where it's been Brexit-dominated, but that's actually become much more of a leadership issue. And throughout every day, it seems like there's been a meeting or a press conference or some briefing from different sides of the Conservative Party. And it really does feel everybody's now at each other's throats over this. It does, which is obviously good for our business. And it's led to a sort of quite a difficult environment for Theresa May at Westminster this week. And we're in the middle of a short two-week parliamentary session. So MPs got a lot to get off their chest. They're getting together for the first time since the summer. And I think what's happened over the summer is that the pennies finally dropped. First of all, the Eurosceptics really hate the Chequers compromise plan. And that's been beefed up, I think, by going back to their constituencies and being whispered into their ears by yeah. uh, residents and what have you. Quite, that echo chamber that their constituency parties overwhelmingly Eurosceptic, of course. And the second thing going on over the summer is I think they've realised that Theresa May is going to get a deal in Brussels. And that suddenly brought matters to a head. And as a result, you've had members of the European Research Group, as you know, a pro-Brexit group, trying to think of ways of how to stop Theresa May at all costs. And that basically comes down to two alternatives. One is you vote down the deal that she brings back from Brussels, probably in November, which carries its own risks. Or you try and bring Theresa May down before she can even put her pen on the paper in the European Council building. Both those options are being discussed. And as you say, were the subject of a very lively discussion among 50 of them on Tuesday night. They've been very careful, people like Boris Johnson and David Davis, to criticise the policy and the proposals so far. So their favourite phrase is to chuck checkers. They've said that. But that did start to change with the language of Steve Baker, who is a very prominent organiser within the European Research Group and is someone who's a great political tactician in within the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And he started to shift the dial away from policy criticisms to personal criticisms. Yes, that's right. He was saying that as many as 80 MPs could vote against Chequers. And he said that if the Prime Minister persevered with this, that would bring about a catastrophic split in the Conservative Party, which, as you say, raised the stakes. But I think what we've seen this week, really, is the ratcheting up of the rhetoric and sabre-rattling and talk of leadership plots and all the rest of it 
as a displacement activity for the Eurosceptics who've been unable to get their act together to put together their own detailed proposal of what their alternative Brexit would look like. And that's become blindingly obvious to us over the week. Initially, there had been a plan for a grid of announcements through the week, setting out in detail exactly what the Brexiteers would do as an alternative to checkers. They weren't able to agree on this blueprint. They weren't able to agree on tactics. And so instead of getting a detailed set of proposals, we've had a couple of separate initiatives, one on Northern Ireland, one on a free trade deal, but nothing in terms of concrete proposals. And substituted for that has been sort of lurid language, Boris Johnson writing about the Prime Minister strapping a suicide vest to Britain, and then Steve Baker raising the stakes and talking about the threat that Theresa May will bring the party into a state of complete chaos. And I think really the language is a substitute for policy. Yes, so those two policy things you mentioned, this the first one was Economist for Free Trade, it should be called Economist for Brexit, and they put forward a paper which, if it didn't quite endorse a no-deal Brexit, certainly said that it would all be fine. This is based on the modelling of Professor Patrick Binford, who's a very dry Thatcherite economist. There's been a lot of scrutiny of this paper, saying it's not got the detail, a lot of it's based on false assumptions, yet... Again, these arguments have been made before and it doesn't seem to really stop the same arguments being made again. When you looked at the meeting of that room, you know, a lot of people have made comparisons to the Eurosceptic movement in the 1990s, where it was a lot of middle-aged white Tory men banging on about Europe that no one was really listening. And it had that sense of it again. And Philip Hammond came out and rubbished these economic proposals pretty quickly, if I'm right. Yes, he did. The same day, I went to cover him giving evidence at the House of Lords Economy Committee and I had a chat with Philip Hammond before the meeting and you could tell he was scathing about the ideas that had been advanced at this meeting. And it was a meeting of the true believers, as you say. There was a bit of commentary about the fact that I was heckled at this meeting. I asked, What did you ask? Well, I asked a question about, I said, well, presuming you accept that it's impossible for Britain to strike a detailed Canada plus style trade deal between now and next March. And people started saying, why do you say that? Why do you say that? Well, I speak to most trade experts, you'd expect this kind of detailed work to take at least five years rather than five months. But nevertheless, they were true believers. But again, they weren't really united on this. Some of them were in favour of leaving without a deal, going straight onto the World Trade Organisation terms. But I asked Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Baker, was this the official plan B? Jacob Rees-Mogg seemed to think that we should be able to leave without a deal. Steve Baker seemed to be suggesting that we needed a deal to give us more time to negotiate a Canada-style trade agreement. So it's not an entirely united front. But as you say, you got the sense of the dividing lines in the Tory party hardening up echoes of the 1990s. And this whole idea of this exercise, if we think back to David Cameron saying it was an idea to lance the boil and plainly it hasn't even succeeded in its own terms. Well, I think we can both acknowledge we're going to spend the rest of our respective careers writing about Brexit in some form or another, whatever happens. The second Brexit paper we had this week was from the ERG about Northern Ireland. This was trying to put forward alternative proposals to have a frictionless border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And the EU has insisted there needs to be a backstop. The Theresa May government insists there needs to be some form of backstop. But the ERG proposed essentially were moving the border and not trying to have it actually at the border and using various technical solutions and checks. And with this paper, people at least admitted it was detailed and engaged with it. But the solutions, again, didn't seem to get much traction. Well, really, it was a recycling of a lot of the arguments that were had over the summer about the two different government alternatives to tackling the Northern Ireland border. And this is basically the so-called Max Fack idea, which was rejected by the government simply because they didn't feel it was practical, the technology wasn't there. And even Owen Patterson, the former Northern Ireland Secretary, who was at the launch, admitted there was nothing new. It was all rather boring. And someone said to him, well, if all this technology is out there and it's all quite old hat, can you name a single other place in the world as a customs frontier where there's no physical infrastructure at the border? 
and he wasn't able to give an answer. And of course, the answer is there isn't such a place. And in the end, you know, that is the argument that Theresa May will keep coming back to. If you had a Canada-style free trade agreement of the kind people like Jacob Rees-Mogg wants, that would inevitably lead to some kind of infrastructure at the border. Now, I think probably with some justification, the Eurosceptics say that this argument about the Northern Ireland border has been used a bit as a tail to wag the dog and to drive the debate in a certain direction. But nevertheless, the Eurosceptics have still been unable to provide a convincing argument of how you have a trade agreement like that without having physical infrastructure at the border. I remember David Davis talked about the Canada-US border as being an example. Well, I don't know whether you've been to the Canada-US border, but certainly at Niagara Falls, you have a huge plaza, you have policemen with guns, you have policemen with dogs, you have checks and all the rest of it. The idea that is an invisible border is quite fanciful. This brings to the question about is there going to be a challenge or not against Theresa May? Now, my sense of this is that if the hardliners wanted to have a challenge tomorrow, they probably could, that you need to get the 48 signatures to have a no-confidence vote in the Prime Minister. There's talk for about 35 of those letters already being written, and you can easily think of the people who would be happy to write that. The challenge they then have is what happens next, because there's then a straight... Do you have a confidence vote in the party leader? Yes or no? And to win that, they need 158 votes. And Theresa May has said, although she does have to say this, that even if she wins by one vote, she will cling on. The question is, how many votes do they have for that? And how much do you think they would need to dent the Prime Minister's authority enough that she would have to go anyway? Well, just at the starting point of this, if you follow the newspaper coverage of this threat to Theresa May over the last year or so, you constantly wake up on a Sunday morning with people saying that the 48 names are almost there to trigger a vote of no confidence, followed on by stories about Eurosceptics giving Theresa May a stay of execution, maybe until the summer, maybe until the Tory conference, maybe until after Brexit's done, maybe until the summer of 2019. It keeps being pushed back. And the reason this moment keeps being pushed back is because the Tories don't have a plan beyond chaos which is what would happen if they tried to topple Theresa May. You're right, they could get to 48 names, I'm absolutely sure, if they wanted to, but they wouldn't get anywhere near to the 158 they would need to bring Theresa May down. And if you sat in the House of Commons this week and listened to the reception she got at Prime Minister's question, you can tell there is a large majority of the Conservative Party you don't often hear about in the newspapers who frankly think Theresa May is doing a good job in difficult circumstances, that removing her would create chaos, could mean that Brexit doesn't happen, could mean that Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister. At the end of that session of Prime Minister's Question Time, it was probably the loudest I can remember. It was also deafening. I think I more, came, I came more. out of the earache after yeah, that. Yeah, people saying more, more. And that wasn't just a bit of show of support to Theresa May. That was a rebuke to the people who'd been plotting behind closed doors against her, I think. And on that, what was quite interesting was the other side of the Tory party from the European Research Group, which is the Tory Reform Group, which is an advocate of one nation, sort of more left-leaning conservatism. And they had a meeting this week and about 80 MPs turned up, which is, I think, bigger than most people assumed the Tory Reform Group would be. And they essentially were there to back Theresa May and show that there is this quiet majority in the middle of the Parliamentary Conservative Party who just want to get on with it. They're pragmatic on Brexit. They don't really want Boris Johnson or someone of his ilk in as prime minister. So they would be a big obstacle to removing her. I think so, yes. I mean, they've become sort of almost a perpetuarian guard, or at least they are now that she's adopted the Chequers plan. And I think they could just quickly turn against it. If there was any suggestion, which, by the way, I don't think there will be, that she was moving her Brexit strategy towards Jacob Rees-Mogg. But you're right. I mean, the Tory reform group is a venerable institution in the Conservative Party. It used to be associated with a very wet it's used that's right terminology, wing of the Conservative Party, Ken Clark and the like, very pro-European, but seems to have transmogrified into a much more kind of mainstream, as you say, moderate group in the party. 
and definitely a show of strength and to show that actually you hear a lot from Jacob Rees-Mogg and the European Research Group on the Eurosceptic wing of the party, but there's another voice in the Conservative Party which will be heard in the event that there's a serious attempt to bring down Theresa May. And just to go back to a point I made earlier, so if we do end up having a confidence vote in Theresa May, they may not get the 158 in, but if they got sort of... 100. That would be a huge dent to her authority. And I suppose the calculation that those who do want to get rid of her are trying to make is how much do we have to damage her that she cannot stay on? Because you can make an argument that if a 100 of your MPs don't think you should be prime minister and party leader, then maybe you shouldn't be party leader. Well, that's certainly true. And um, if you think back to just as I was starting at the House of Commons in ancient history when Margaret Thatcher was facing Michael Heseltine, when the rules were different, incidentally, about how you staged leadership challenge. And she won the first round of voting fairly convincingly, but more than 100 people from memory supported Michael Heseltine. And that became clear that she was finished. She couldn't carry on. That was it. Her authority was shattered. And of course, quite a few days later, she resigned. So it's true that, let's say, more than 100 Tory MPs voted against Theresa May. That probably would be the end of Theresa May. And then there would be a leadership contest. But I don't think those in the party at the moment are anywhere near 100. Steve Baker talked about 80 people being prepared to vote against Chequers. while well, speaking to someone in number 10 who said, why use the number 80 when you don't have 80? He doesn't have 80. There probably aren't 80 people who vote against Chequers, and certainly there's nowhere near 80 who would vote to bring down Theresa May at the moment. I would guess the number would be closer to 20 or 30 than to 80. So it's a popular parlour game at the moment, but most Eurosceptics you speak to accept that Theresa May is not going to be challenged before the crucial EU summit in November. She will do a deal, I'm pretty convinced, in Brussels. All the mood music certainly seems to be going in that direction. Yeah, the, the language is warming up between Brussels and London and the strategic interest of both the UK and the EU is for a deal to be done in November. I think a deal will be done. Then the real moment of truth won't be whether they can assemble the names to challenge or trigger a vote of confidence in Theresa May. The big moment for Theresa May will be, can she get that deal through Parliament? Because if she can't, that is the most effective way for the Eurosceptics to stop checkers. And it's probably the most effective way for them to bring down Theresa May as well. The problem is, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, Seb, the result is entirely unpredictable, but it will certainly lead to a prolonged period of absolute chaos. One thing I thought was particularly significant on the House of Commons arithmetic this week was Lisa Nandy, who's the MP for Wigan, and she's been on this podcast over the summer. She told the BBC she would vote for Chequers' deal to avoid chaos. And I think there are quite a lot of Labour MPs who probably feel the same way as well. People like Caroline Flint come to mind, for example, the MP for Don Valley in the north of England, because those people, they don't want to reject Brexit and they don't want to end up having a no-deal Brexit either. So they're going to have to have a long look into their souls at some point when there's a deal and say, are you going to vote for complete chaos or are you going to back this deal? And of course, I'm sure the Labour whip will be voting against it because it's a quote unquote Tory Brexit. It doesn't matter. But there could certainly be a chunk of Labour MPs who back that. And of course, that then plays into the ever fever talk about a breakaway party and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think what I think is very difficult for us at this range, and it's we're only talking about a couple of months, but until you get see the the whites of the eyes of MPs as they confront the meaningful vote, which will probably happen in sometime in late November or early December. It's very hard to know what the mood will be like. I mean, at the moment, you meet plenty of people, particularly Conservative MPs, who say, everyone hates checkers. There's no way in a million years this will get through Parliament. I'm not sure whether they believe it or not. But the truth is, when it comes down to it, it will be presented as a choice between this deal and the possibility that Brexit doesn't happen at all. And then for those Labour MPs representing very pro-Brexit seats, they face a moment of truth as do Eurosceptic MPs who wanted to take Britain out of the EU all their lives. They face a moment of truth. 
And this is why I think when you speak to people in number 10, there's a surprising air of confidence about the way the autumn is going to pan out in spite of the headlines of the last couple of weeks, which suggest that Theresa May is finished, Chequers is finished, there won't be a deal, we're all heading to hell in a handcart. I think you have to look beneath this and see where people's interests really lie. And now, finally, as you said, we've come to the end of this sort of weird two-week parliamentary season, which is always quite fevered and a lot goes on. We're into delightful conference season quite soon. And I think all the focus is still on what Boris Johnson going to do, because, as you said, he's used a lot of flowery rhetoric. There's this big rally that's planned for the Tuesday of Conservative Conference. And if he comes out again and just says, look, we need to chuck checkers fine but where does he go next because really the only argument you can see is for him to try and mount some kind of challenge i can't see what else he can do to keep his campaign going well it's tough isn't it um i bumped into boris this week and had a chat with him about his difficult few weeks and he said that people were trying to get him to shut up he said i'm not going to shut up so one thing we can be absolutely sure about is he will be the star of the tory conference there will be people queuing around the block to go and hear him denounce checkers and theresa may's strategy and he'll do it in beautifully florid terms but then what? That is the question, because Theresa May is going to deliver a deal in Brussels. It will probably bear a lot of resemblance to Chequers, or at least the Chequers elements are the most controversial will be kicked into the long grass into the second part of the negotiation. So I think probably if you're a hardline Eurosceptic, you have to start thinking, well, look, we might be invited to vote for what people call a blind Brexit without really knowing what the future trade relationship will really look like. That negotiation will really happen after we leave. So I suspect we'll start to hear a lot of people, including Boris Johnson, starting to talk about focusing on removing Theresa May after March 2019 and then a real Eurosceptic taking control of the real negotiations that take place afterwards. And then you might expect to see a whole host of people entering the lists, including Boris and Michael Gove and maybe Jacob Rees-Mogg, who knows. But the common theme of all this is you keep pushing down the road the moment of truth. As you said, it never ends. On the Labour side this week, John McDonnell made headlines with his latest economic proposals. Speaking to the TUC's 150th conference, the Shadow Chancellor promised significant changes to employment law. He promised to end zero-hours contracts, beef up trade union legislation, introduce collective wage bargaining across the economy and bringing a £10 living wage. Altogether, it represents a clean break from the Thatcherite employment settlement and would significantly change the idea of Britain having a flexible labour market. Laura Hughes, you were there reporting on John McDonnell's big speech. I imagine it was catnip to the TUC audience there, but this very much follows on the thinking we've heard from the Shadow Chancellor consistently over the past two years. Yeah, no, it was warmly welcomed by the unions in the room, as you would imagine, and I'm sure... John McDonnell would be very thrilled at the level of coverage that the FT gave him because actually I think we were right in giving it a big show because it was a huge moment. He's proposing changing the rules, taking us back before, you know, Margaret Thatcher's time. And it's at a moment where we have other big figures and think tanks coming out and saying things that aren't too dissimilar about wage stagnation, the fact that there is inequality this whole issue of the gig economy and what it means for workers. So it was very welcomed by unions in the room. And as we know, it wasn't as welcomed by businesses outside of the TUC conference. Robert Trimsley, what did you make of the proposals? Because I think in our FT editorial this week, we essentially said the ideas were good. He's identified something, but the prescriptions, as they often are with Mr. McDonald, are maybe just a bit too radical. Well, they're what I would have expected him to propose. What I think we have to recognise, and I think the Conservatives recognise, certainly if we think back to when Theresa May became Prime Minister, she certainly recognised but there was a mood in the country that the settlement between 
the employed and employers had gone wrong and that just as at the end of the 1970s when Mrs Thatcher came to power there was a recognition in the country that unions had too much power now I think there's a recognition in the country that workers have too little they're too vulnerable they're too easily dismissed that there are too many flexible solutions which are great for employers who want to cut costs but not necessarily very good for people trying to earn a living and that there is a need to rebalance this settlement now, what John McDonnell has done is taken the approach that you would expect someone very much from the left of the Labour Party, someone who opposed the Thatcherite reforms in the first place, to have taken. He is maxing out on the trade union power. He will give them enormous rights of representation right up to board level. He will come up with plans to create a degree of share ownership or equity ownership of some kind for workers. And this is what I would expect him to do. Clearly, if you believe in free market solutions, if you believe in a flexible labour market, that's problematic. And I think the big challenge for the Conservative Party now, and anyone who doesn't like the McDonnell agenda, is to try and come up with solutions which answer some of the concerns that the public are expressing, but don't necessarily go as far as John McDonnell. One of the big pieces of this speech was about trade union legislation and people like John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn never really accepted the Thatcherite reforms and also the more recent trade union bill, which have all curbed the right of trade unions. And in a sense, it's unpicking that whole idea and bringing back lots more rights to trade unions. But the trade unions today are very different to where they were in the 1980s and the 1970s. They're mostly representing public sector workers. They're a lot smaller and less influential. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, they are a product of the reforms. As you say, they are more concentrated in public sector than they are in the private sector. Mostly their powers to strike have been curbed to the point that they don't use them. And the only times that you see real trade union muscle now are in areas like the railway services where they have real power to bring things to a halt. That's where they are now. On the other hand, if you change the landscape in which they live, they'll change too. If being in a trade union gives you real power, then people will want to join it. If the trade unions know that they have the government at their back, then they will become more aggressive and more militant in fighting for what they think is reasonable. So the unions we have now are a product of laws we have now. We change the laws, we'll change the unions. The second most striking of law was all about zero hours contracts in the gig economy. And this is something the Conservatives have acknowledged too when they commissioned Matthew Taylor to write a review into employment law. And he essentially recommended that people in the gig economy should be treated as a proper employees and given more rights. But John McDonnell went even further. He said he would ban zero hours contract and would be a lot tougher on employers to make sure they're not using the gig economy as a routes to avoid having people on the payroll. Yeah, and it is an interesting point because actually Nick Timothy would probably agree with some of the principles that McDonnell has identified. So Theresa May's former chief of staff. Yeah, so you know, it's not so radical today, I think, to suggest that there is an issue when we have companies like Uber and Deliveroo who connect their workers with the consumers but take absolutely no responsibility for their welfare etc and it does leave them in a sort of no man's legal land where no one's really responsible and the Matthew Taylor report did recommend certain improvements in their conditions but yeah McDonald's gone much further he said on day one of a Labour government workers will have exactly the same rights as full-time employees in a company which basically doesn't make them casual workers anymore and the criticism that was levied by business is that for some people who have caring commitments or studying commitments, that flexible approach, the idea that you can just log into an app and work whenever you want at four o'clock in the morning or at two o'clock in the afternoon is actually a benefit to them. There's obviously a big battle going on with Uber at the moment. 
some things that companies are doing. Uber introduced an insurance scheme, so staff did have access to that. That was paid for by Uber. So there are things that businesses should start talking about and should start doing voluntarily because I think the big objection to what John McDonnell was saying is that it was all very compulsory. There's no give or take here. You do it or you don't. And that's never going to be popular with business. And that was the same for another proposal about profit sharing that said companies with over 250 employees would have to have a scheme which allowed to share some dividends with their employees. And that would obviously tackle perceived unfairness and and add an incentive but for businesses they might just see it as a step too far and we saw that as you mentioned in the response from the CBI which has not been particularly welcoming of any of Labour's economic proposals and says that there's this undercurrent of disliking business behind everything that they do and Mr McDonald has been on a big charm offensive across the city of London and across businesses to try and win favour with those people which the FT has reported on quite a lot but it doesn't seem to be working not least with big business. No, so there were the employee owners funds that would help give staff more money or give them a share in their business, which on the surface does again sound attractive. But I think what business were coming out with was saying, you know, what we should be looking into is improving wages. That's the issue. What's the actual source of this resentment and this problem is people feel like their wages are stagnating and they're not getting paid enough. They look at people working for Amazon, they feel like they're not paying enough tax. And that's an idea that we saw the Archbishop of Canterbury support when he spoke at the TUC yesterday. It is a popular argument, but it's also very tricky and a lot of people were just questioning how this would be implemented on day one. There are a couple of points to think about on this. One is that although we talk a lot about the gig economy, it's still actually relatively small in terms of the workforce of the country. It's also the case that Laura mentioned this, the bulk of people who would be considered on flexible hours are actually satisfied with the situation they're in. The concern is that employers are incentivised to increase flexibility, to push people off staff, to push people off payroll, because it's cheaper. And the Taylor report that was commissioned by the Conservatives, it's worth remembering, was commissioned as a, because they were concerned about the impact on tax revenue of pushing people off payroll. And they're now consulting a change in the, the rules so that private sector workers who are essentially doing what would have been considered on-staff jobs are treated that way in national insurance purposes and that their employers are also treated that way because there's a big hole in the finances that comes from this as well. But I think if you wipe out all of that flexibility, then you're going to create a lot of problems for employers and what you will have is jobs disappearing. One of the interesting ideas that was put forward, I think, by the think tank, the ITPPR, was that instead of banning flexible contracts or zero-hours contracts, you make people pay more for them. So you say, OK, you can have maximum flexibility written into this contract, but the minimum wage for this contract is going to be two or three pounds higher than it is normally. And that gives employers and employees about that rebalances. And I think that's an interesting idea. One of the other things that, again, has had a mixed reaction was this £10 living wage, which is quite a bit higher is at the moment. And the concerns of businesses is if you bring that in very quickly, it's going to cost jobs. Now, a lot of these arguments were made when the national minimum wage came in in the 90s. Do you think this would be any different, Robert? Well, it is about the implementation. Those arguments were made around the original implementation of national minimum wage. But it's one of the reasons why the national minimum wage was brought in very conservatively and set relatively low. And there was a lot of work done on what the appropriate level was. I think an aim of getting a national minimum wage that rises to what is a living wage for a lot of people is a perfectly reasonable idea and one that would be welcomed by a lot of people. At the moment, the taxpayer is subsidising that gap anyway with working families tax credits and things like that. So 
it's nothing wrong with the idea of doing this. It is about the speed with which you introduce it. And I think, again, the report that Laura referred to that was backed by the Archbishop of Canterbury also talked about the government using an introductory scale so that this was introduced over a period of years. The workers got it immediately. Businesses didn't have to pay all the costs straight away. Let's just stand back a moment, Laura, and look at just how this sits in the politics of things, because once again, it's Labour speaking to this mood for change within the country, the sense that the economic settlement at the moment doesn't quite speak to what people are wanting. So when Mr McDonald comes out with these radical proposals, which, as we've discussed, would have big impacts on the jobs market and the economy, they tend to get a warmer reception than you might have otherwise thought. It also puts a big challenge towards the Conservatives, because as we said, they had the Taylor report that was pretty well received all round, but now it just looks as if they're fiddling whereas Mr McDonnell is going to bring that big substantial change. It's not just on this on a whole host of areas, you know, nationalisation is another example of that. Yeah, exactly. I think the Tories need to up their game a bit because the ideology behind what Mr McDonald is saying is quite reasonable. People understand it, people sympathise with it, Tories sympathise with it. So I think a lot of work needs to be done. There are MPs like Rob Halfon off the top of my head who's big into this and workers' rights. But they have got to do more, I think, because the Taylor report was a long time ago. And I know Labour, when they were briefing after McDonald's speech, were saying, well, we're still waiting to know what they're actually going to do. What are they actually going to do? It feels like consultation after consultation, waiting. And it would be politically savvy now, I think, for the Tories to come out with some big suggestions. But the tricky bit is that while Labour are calling for high wages, etc., they're also calling for more taxes on business. And that's the bit that's confusing. And that's where the Tories could come in and say, right, well, look, if you pay your staff more, then we're going to do this and let you off the hook in some way. I think there needs to be a bit of a, I think a move from them. The issue in terms of the politics of this, which the Conservatives have failed to get at so far, at least, is one of practicality. There's no question that saying to people, we're going to make you better off, we're going to give you more control over your life and over your job. And let's not forget the take back control slogan, which was so powerful in the referendum was also speaking to the sense of powerlessness that comes in the workplace. That's a very, very powerful saying, you know, we will shortly be implementing the seven recommendations of the Taylor report is not a winning (laughs) slogan. So they're going to actually have to get at the Labour proposals if they want to undermine them and say why they won't work, why they'll cost jobs, why they are damaging to the economy and what the costs are. And it's no good saying it'll be just like the winter of discontent because an awful lot of voters don't remember 1978. So they've actually got to make an argument and also come up with alternative proposals, which they might do once they finish arguing over Brexit. And finally, from you both, what can we sort of expect from John McDonnell at Labour conference? Because his speech last year was a real barnstormer in Brighton, I remember. And there was that line where said, mail, rail, energy, we're bringing them all back home. And his big message then was all about the benefits of nationalisation. And ever since the general election last year, Labour's become more confident in its increasingly radical message. So we can sort of assume it's going to be what we've heard before, but on steroids. I've heard he's changed his mind completely. He's completely become... (laughs) persuaded by the free market. Now, I think you're going to hear more details and more commitments on the nationalisation. I think that's going to be one of the centrepieces of his speech. I think there'll be a bit more on his plans to tax and how that tax will hit the wealthiest and how people who can afford to pay will pay. You mentioned his um, schmoozing business up to a point. One of his messages has been, I'm explaining what we're doing, some things they like and the bits they don't like they're going to have to learn to live with. So I think you can expect a similarly uncompromising speech. 
I definitely would agree with that and I'm sure he will be warmly received. This is going to be a huge Labour conference. You've got serious numbers of new members, I think, are going to be there. There is one last point I'd make on this, which is actually, if you consider the summer Labour has had, it has spent an awful lot of time talking about itself, dealing with the anti-Semitism issue. He is almost the only person who is cutting through, talking about things that matter to ordinary voters. And I think... The Labour conference will again be dominated by procedure and deselection issues and some of the rows over anti-Semitism. His is one of the few big set piece events which has the potential to cut through and grab voters' attention on things they're actually interested in. Very true. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Laura and Robert for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to have more from the FT, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash 50. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.